morning. Good to see everybody here. How are we doing today? Good. What an awesome start to our service this morning. Holy, there is no one like him. What a blessing to be able to sing that together. I'm excited uh, this morning for the opportunity again to open the word with you. And uh, this morning, uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a, a step back from Colossians. Uh, we just finished chapter 2 last week. And uh, we're going to take a break from that just for uh, the next week. We're going to look into Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at uh, a text that's going to help us talk about what does it look like to be engaged in biblical community. And so uh, this morning, uh, I'm excited for the opportunity to uh, gather together. And, and one of the things that I just want to make mention this morning is uh, I think it's important for us to remember the blessing that it is for us to gather in person. All of us together under one roof, lifting high the name of Jesus. And uh, this morning, as, as we get ready, uh, we're going to be doing our growth group launch today, so we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. At the end of service, you're going to hear testimony from a brother who has been in growth groups and has seen transformation through them, and uh, we'll also get to meet our leaders. And so that's what we're talking about today, and uh, for me, the, the reason I'm excited about this morning is the text we're going to study is one that I've been aware of for, mo for a lot of my life. And uh, it's one that I've read through, it's one that I've had conversations through, but this is really the first time I've sat and I've tried to consider and study what this text brings and what it means. And uh, so this morning, as we look at our text in Hebrews 10, uh, we're going to be considering what does it look like, and, and more importantly, why should we gather together as believers? And uh, as I was getting ready for this, uh, I was thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a theologian and a pastor in Germany uh, during Hitler's uh, wicked reign, and, and, and throughout that, World War II began, and obviously the killing of many, many Jewish people. And it is through the ministry of Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book called Life Together. And this book is basically um, considering how did God design community, and why is it something that we should be engaged in? And in this book, Bonhoeffer talks about how uh, many people who confess the name of Jesus do not have the blessing of being person to person with Christian community. Many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, uh, they are either in jails or they're underground trying to evade arrest or abuse. And there are many who believe on the name of Jesus this morning who do not have the opportunity we have to gather in a room together to sing songs, to hear from the scriptures, and to encourage one another. And the reason I mention that is Bonhoeffer makes very clear to us that community is not something that man creates. It is not something we program. It is not something that we designed. It is something that God has created, and he has done so uh, as we have relationship with Christ, we can have that with one another as well. And so as we look at this, uh, the thing that I want us to be mindful of as well is in, in, when you consider our brothers and sisters throughout the world, many of them are blessed if they just can open a text of scripture and read from it. Many of them are blessed if they can just see someone face to face who confesses Christ. And I want us to consider the fact that you and I are on the opposite end of the spectrum. We have a plethora of opportunities to open up the word. We have books that we can read. We have podcasts we can listen to. We can listen to any church service that we want to on demand through our phone. And, and I think if we're not careful, we can mistake the plethora of information and replace that with community. Though we have access to information, though we have access to the ability to dig deep into the word of God, we need one another. And so the reason I want to challenge us on this is that though there are people who don't have what we have this morning, all of us have the same hope, and that is we are going to have fellowship eternally with Christ together. And because of that, I think we need to carefully consider why we come together, and I want to challenge us to make it a point 
to be intentional with each other. As I was thinking about this, um, <clears throat> there's a, in, in this book that I read called Transformational Groups, I'd recommend it to you. The authors talk about the sequoia tree. <clears throat> the sequoia tree is a tree that is, uh, there's, there's hundreds of them in clusters, and these trees can stand at 250 feet and higher, and many of them have been around for over 1,500 years. And I see you guys talking. They're from California, right? Yep. So these trees are located in California. Sorry I pick on you guys. Um, and these trees are massive. They're huge. They've lasted for a long time. And oftentimes when we think about a tree and its ability to withstand time and to withstand storms is because of its roots going deep. With the sequoia tree, the roots only go about four feet deep. So it's not because they have deep roots, it's because they have roots that go wide. They have, these trees are in clusters together, and what happens is their roots begin to grow across one another, and in some cases even fuse together. And so as the storms come, as things happen, they not only have their roots, but they have the roots of one another that are holding each other together. And so in a similar way, you and I, yes, we can study the scriptures, we can listen to podcasts, we can read books, we can fill our heads with all kinds of knowledge, but apart from community, we will not experience transformation. And as I was reading this book, a quote that I want to share with you from page six, this is kind of a warning to us, this is what it says, while we are grateful for the encouragement, resources, and opportunities for individuals to grow, we fear that the beauty and necessity of community may be lost in the forest of resources for the individual. If community is ignored, the resources may fill minds while not transforming hearts. So we have a challenge before us where we have access to the word of God, and we can say amen to that, but we also need to be aware that we need to be in community. We need people to help us take what we know and put it into practice. And so this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read 19 through 25. So if you can join me there, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And this is what our text says this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together with brothers and sisters each confessing that Jesus is Lord. We thank you this morning that we got to witness a brother being baptized and confessing uh, his allegiance to you. And Lord, we pray as we open your word this morning that your spirit would guide us into truth and that he would help take what we know and put it into practice. Lord, we love you and we pray your blessing over this time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so obviously this morning we're jumping into the middle of a book. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're kind of hopping into the middle of a very broad context. And so I just want to offer some background and summarizing information so that we know where we're at. And so the author of Hebrews does not make themselves known. And this has led to much discussion about who wrote the book. I know Pastor Mike and I, we both agree. We believe Paul wrote this book. And so we believe Paul wrote the book. And that it's very clear that he wrote this book to a group of people who were Jewish Christians, people who 
were in the Jewish system. They had born, been born going through the ceremonial practices, going through the sacrificial systems, celebrating the holidays, and then they had heard of Messiah being Jesus and trusted in him. And so we have these people who have begun a relationship with Christ, and they've had this relationship for a number of years. This is a group of people who have been through persecution and are currently going through persecution. Many of them have lost property. Many of them have had to move, and they have this persecution that they're facing for identifying themselves with the body of Christ. Also, we know about this group that they've had godly leadership over the years. They have been faithfully taught scripture. They have been faithfully taught what it means to honor God with their lives. And then, for, and then finally, uh, this is a group that is known for displaying acts of service and love to one another. In a lot of ways, this is a church that is healthy. This is a church that has received Jesus as Lord. Right? They're being taught faithfully from scripture how to live for him. They're demonstrating their love for him by loving one another. And this is a very good thing. However, they're facing a very specific and very important danger. The danger they face is not like in Colossae where they're facing Gnosticism or, or philosophy or asceticism or, or, or these forms of legalism. What they are faced with is the temptation to apostatize. To be an apostate means to make a deliberate and permanent choice to re reject Jesus as Messiah. It means to move away from that belief system. And, and what we know and what we've talked about in the past, Pastor Mike laid out for us, once alive, always alive. For, so for those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord and we truly have been born again, we're going to find comfort in this letter because what is said in this letter will continue to help us persevere. And so he's writing to this group of people who are being persecuted for believing Jesus as Messiah, and he is reminding them of what they know to be true about Christ and how they should act in response to that. And so as we look at this, what we find is the author makes very clear throughout chapter 10 that Jesus is the better sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice, there is no other system that can satisfy the righteous wrath of God on sinful men and women. Jesus is the only sacrifice sufficient. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the author of this chapter, uh, Paul, I'm just going to say his name, Paul is challenging these believers that though they're facing temptation, that there is nothing good for them to go back to. To leave what they already know to be true about Christ will not benefit them. And so he's going to challenge them to be mindful of who Jesus is. And I believe when you and I are mindful of who Jesus is, it will move us to faithful action. And so as we look at this, the first thing we're going to look at is what does this text tell us about Jesus? And so look at me in verse 19. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for, the, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So the first thing we see here is that the, the text is encouraging us to have confidence. We have confidence in entering the holy places. When we think about who he's talking to, the, the people who are receiving this word, they have grown up and, and come to believe in a system where there's only one person who has access to the holy places, and that access is only one time a year, the high priest. The high priest was the only one who was given the ability to go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies to represent the people and to bring that sacrifice for the atonement of sins. Only one person, one time a year. And so the people would 
corporately allow that person to represent them. And what this text is saying to you and I this morning is that you and I, individually, we are given confidence to enter into the holy places. And so he's talking about this old system where the high priest was the only one that was allowed in, and he's, com- he's going to compare that with the new system that we have available to us. And so this access is prohibited apart from the high priest. And we know that the high priest went through a very thorough process to prepare themselves to come into the Holy of Holies. This reminds me a little bit of, uh, I, I grew up in a private Christian school, K through 12, and uh, my best friend's mother was the secretary of the high school. My mother was the secretary of the elementary school, so we didn't get away with anything. If we did something, it was made known very quickly via walkie-talkie. But the reason I bring this up is I knew the teachers really well, and one of the teachers offered me the privilege of getting a piece of cake from the teacher's lounge. And so I took that word, and I went into the teacher's lounge boldly with confidence, and I went to go get myself a slice of cake, and who's in that room? None other than the headmaster's wife. And she looked at me in the most stern and kind way possible and said, what are you doing in here? And I knew in that very moment that I had no reason to have confidence to be in that room. I didn't belong in there. And now, we all understand that you're not supposed to go in the teacher's lounge, don't we? We're not allowed in there. We're not permitted access. The reason that my confidence was shaky is because the person who gave me permission wasn't with me. So when I went into the teacher's lounge, it was based on my merit, based on my authority, and that was not enough. I was removed. And so as we think about having confidence to enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, if I go in there by myself, I'm struck down. I cannot have access to God. And why is that? Because I'm a sinner I have a sin nature, and yet because of who Christ is, when I am with him, I am gained access into that place. And so we are to come into the Holy of Holies with confidence. And so um, as we think about this, it's, it's this reality that our confidence center of the Holy of Holies is not shaky because it's not based on me. It's based on him. And so as we continue in our verse, it says, we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, we have access. Again, this brings to picture, brings to mind the Old Testament. In order for the high priest to gain access into the Holy of Holies, he would have to sprinkle the blood of the ram seven times as he walked towards the mercy seat. It was only by the basis of that blood that he was given entry into the Holy of Holies. And so he comes into the Holy of Holies, and what we find is that it is by the blood that he's given that access. But again, it's one person, one time a year. Through Christ, through his shed blood, you and I are given access into the Holy of Holies anytime, any place, because of the finished work of Christ. As you notice, in, as we continue in these verses, it, it says this, by the new and living way that he opened for us. I love this word new, because it's not what I thought it was. The idea of the word new here refers to something that is newly killed, just dead, recent, or fresh. So the sacrifice of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, is fresh. It's as though it is new. The Old Testament sacrifices, they would be slain, gaining access into the Holy of Holies, but that blood would go bad. That sacrifice was a one-time thing that needed to be repeated over and over. But by the shed blood of Christ, we have a new way, a way that is fresh, a way that doesn't go bad, it doesn't expire, and it's a living way. We have a Savior who died, who was buried, and who is alive forevermore. So the new and living way, the living way meaning that we have a road or we have an access into the Holy of Holies that is permanent, that is not going anywhere, because the one who gained us that access is alive. And so as we think about 
The old system, again, you have one individual who would be given access one time a year, and now what the author is saying is, look, you can go in with confidence because Jesus, through his shed blood, has given us a permanent, new, fresh way. We have uninhibited access to the Father. As we think about this, uh, you know, it's important, I think, that we get a word picture in our minds, and we are encouraged to think of the blood of Christ that was shed as a fountain that is ever more willowing up and not a pond that just dries up and, and shrivels up. His blood is something that is perpetually paying the price for our sin. It's, it's a one-time sacrifice that cares for all that I've done, all that I do, and all that I will do. Uh, this brought to mind a song. It took me a few minutes humming it to try to remember how it goes. I'm not going to do that for you. There is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Another verse further down. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Amen. The, the blood of the lamb will never lose its power. It has a perpetual nature to it. It is a one-time sacrifice that lasts for good. And so, continuing on, we see that not only is it a new and living way that he opened for us, but it's through this curtain that is his flesh. Again, we're brought to mind the temple. There is a very thick veil, a curtain, that separates man from the presence of God. And we know that it's not just a curtain that does that, it's our sin nature. We are rebels against a holy and perfect God from birth. And because of that, there is a veil that separates us from his presence. And we know that when Christ was crucified at his death, we know that the veil was torn from the top down in the temple. And this was to signify that the means or the, the curtain that, that blocked us was now gone. I don't have to go through a temple to, 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 through a veil in a temple to have access to God. I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to go through a pastor. I can go through because of the finished work of Christ. And so Jesus, through, the, through his flesh that was torn and that was beaten and that was destroyed, much like the veil that was torn, it opened the way for us to come in. And it is a new and living way. And so as we think about the high priest, the high priest would get all prepared. They would go through a cleansing process, and then they would come in, and they would open the veil, and then they would come into the Holy of Holies. And you and I are told that you and I have access, and that we can confidently come in just as that priest would have done whenever we want. We are to come in with confidence and with boldness because Christ has made the way. As, and as we continue, by coming through Jesus, we gain access into the Holy of Holies, and we do so with confidence because it does not have anything to do with my merit. It has nothing to do with my performance. It has everything to do with what he has already accomplished. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to question if I'm going to have access. It's a done deal. It's finished because of Christ's work on the cross. And so this sacrifice provides a road that gives me perpetual access for the remainder of my life until I see him face to face. And so the key thing that, I, that, that, that comes to my mind here is that I know, I know that I am accepted in the beloved because of the blood of Christ. I don't have to worry when I make a mistake if he's going to love me or if he's going to give me access. I don't have to worry about being in a certain location or a certain place. Remember the woman at the well? She's like, hey, we believe you got to be on this mountain. And Jesus says, as long as you worship in spirit and truth, you can gain access to the Father anywhere. And so we have this ability to have fellowship with an almighty, holy, perfect God that we have no business having because of Christ. And so as we think about this, the first thing that I wanted us to know is that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. The old system 
is just that. It's old. It cannot satisfy the wrath of God. It always was pointing forward to the lamb who would come and be slain and then live forevermore. The second thing that we see in this text is that Christ is our priest. Look with me in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and so this is referring to the fact that Jesus is the head, or he is the authority or the ruler of the church. He is the one who gain, gives us access to the Father, and he is the one who is overseeing all people who confess him as Lord. We have access because of him. And, and so he is our priest. Again, a priest, what their role was is they represented the people to God. right? So the high priest was one person representing the whole of the people to God. And what we have through Christ is we have the high priest who has given us access into the heavenly places. And as we are united in him, we ourselves have access. And so as we look at this, there's, there's some verses I just got to read for you. It doesn't do justice to summarize them. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. This is what it says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time, all time, those who are being sanctified. And so we have a Savior whose sacrifice is sufficient, and now we have a priest who has accomplished all the work in a one-time act, and it is perpetual in nature. So, Christ is our priest, Christ is our sacrifice, and what we see here is that he is sufficient, and he stands in our place, and we have confidence because of his work. And so the first thing that, that the author wants them to know in this text is he wants them to remind, be reminded of who is Jesus. Jesus is this all-sufficient sacrifice, and he is the priest over the house of God. Sum it down, I have access to the Father through the Son. And so that is the first thing that the author wants to be reminded of. Forgive me for just one moment. I need to. Back on. My poor wife is mortified. I'm so sorry that I had to do that in front of you all. <laughs> one point down. Let's get into the second one, right? So uh, the second thing that, that the author does is so he shows us what is true of Jesus. And in light of who Jesus is, in light of what is true of him, this is how we're called to act. This is how we're called to move forward. And so the first thing we see is this idea in verse uh, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so you and I are called to come forward with a true heart. In other words, we are to come in boldness, with confidence, with sincerity, with humility, we are to perpetually remind ourselves that apart from the goodness of God through Christ, I have no access. And it's because of that that I come with an earnest, humble uh, attitude of wanting to have fellowship with him. And so I come with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so uh, there needs to be a daily mindfulness of what Christ has done in order to give me access. I never want to grow tired of that. I never want that to become callous to me. That the reason I can come in and I can open up the veil, so to speak, is because of Christ. Uh, as we think about this, this full assurance of faith, this means an unwavering confidence. The, the author is making a, an, the argument that you and I have everything we need in Christ 
to have unwavering confidence. Why? Because the wages of sin is, he's died that death for me, and he has satisfied that through his sacrifice. And so through his death, I'm given access, and then he is the priest who continually intercedes on my behalf. I'm not going into the teacher's lounge by myself. I'm going in there in Christ, with Christ. And so I have full assurance. I don't have to waver. There's no lack of confidence because, again, it's all based on him, not on me. It has nothing to do with what I've done, what I failed to do. It is solely placed on the work of Christ. And so we draw near a full assurance that we stand before God forgiven. We can come with assured confidence that though I still sin, though I still fail, that I stand before God forgiven and that my debt has been canceled. And so the next thing is, as he continues in, so let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And again, this is that picture of the priest coming in, sprinkling the blood as they make their way to the altar. And it's the idea that in the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood on the priest was used to sanctify them for the service. But here's the thing. All that could do it was, an, it was an outside show. All it was was able to help them get their mind right, but the blood of that ram could not change the heart. It is only by the shed blood of Christ and trusting in him that I am made a new creature. And because of his redemptive work in me, then I am made a new being, a new person. And so I have full assurance and full faith that I am forgiven. And these, the heart being sprinkled is this idea that the gospel is something that penetrates to the heart, not just the external. He then talks about cleansing with water. Again, the priest would have to go through a cleansing ritual in order to go into the presence of God. Uh, is it good for us to wash our hands? Yes, it is. It's very good for us to wash our hands. However, I don't need to go through a ritual. I don't need to go through certain steps. I don't need to go through certain people. I can go right to the Father because I have been cleansed through the Son. The Son is my cleansing. And so... Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. And so considering who Christ is, my sacrifice and my priest, I have boldness. I have assured faith that I can come into his presence. Verse, uh, as we continue, I think I'm in verse 22 still. Let's take a look here. The next point is this, let us hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The idea of holding fast is to have a firm hold or grasp on something and to not let it get out from underneath you. Uh, as I was thinking about this this morning and getting ready to, to speak, I couldn't help but to think of my son, Braden. Uh, as, as he's gotten older, changing his diaper has grown to be a little more complicated because he can move and he's getting stronger. And, and what he does sometimes is he will put his foot against the wall and push off of it, rotating the entire cushion he's on off the dresser and so I've learned I have to keep one hand on his chest and then I have to figure out how to change him with the other hand right and you have to hold him fast because if you don't hold him fast he could he could come right, right out from underneath you and what we see here is we are called to hold fast or to cling to what the confession of our hope this refers to statements that we believe about a person specifically of Christ I am to hold fast not by uh, works that I do, not by avoiding certain things, not by following certain rules. I hold fast to the confession that Christ is enough. And so when thoughts come into my mind that would rob me of that belief or take me away from that belief, I hold fast because Christ is sufficient. I am not. And so 
The next thing is he talks about wavering. This idea of wavering is when you're vacillating between one thing and another. And so he's writing to this audience of people who are being persecuted, who are somewhat tempted to bail on Christianity because of the trials they're facing. And he's saying, stop leaning back to the old system. The old system is not sufficient. The old system is satisfied in the new system. It points forward to Christ. And so he's saying, stop leaning back. You guys remember when Israel comes out of Egypt, right? God has done all these miraculous works. Uh, He has preserved them. Not only does he feed them by day and give them water from a rock by night, he makes his presence manifest to them. And yet, as time goes on, what do they do? They begin to lean back towards Egypt. They want to go back there. They remember the food that they had there. They remember the pleasures that they had there. You know what they forgot, though? They forgot that they were in bondage there. They wanted to go back to the very thing that held them in bondage. And so the author is saying, stop leaning back, lean in. And so as I was thinking about this, how many, you'll recognize this, a tire swing, right? Many of us as kids would ride on a tire swing. You'd get packed in there with your siblings, maybe your cousins, and then your dad or an uncle would start pushing you. Right? And as it starts moving around in the circle, you're kind of goofing off. You're like leaning back. You're like, yeah, this is fun. It's getting faster. But as I think it's going faster and faster, if you continue to lean out, you're going to fall out. Right? And so as that starts moving faster and faster and you begin to feel that pull, the thing that has to happen to remain on that tire is to lean in. And we talked about this last week, that our natural tendency when, when life gets difficult, when temptations hit me, is that I go inward. Right? Oh, I sinned again. I can't believe I did that. I, I'm feeling all this shame, and, and I'm feeling bad about myself. And what we do is we go in, and what we must do is we must look up. Get my focus upward. Or in other words, I must lean in. Stop leaning back towards the old system. It can't satisfy. It can't work. Lean into the person and work of Christ. And it, 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 this statement right after that just kind of presses it in even further. He says, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his people, the Israelites, for century after century after century. He has demonstrated his faithfulness to us. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. Look at creation. He said, let there be light, and there's light. God keeps his promises. He keeps, he's faithful. I love in James 1.17, he tells us, I'm just going to read it so I don't, Say it wrong. Verse 17, it says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, as he is forever. He is faithful. And his faithfulness and his love for me does not change when I fail him. He is faithful in spite of my unfaithfulness. And so... We see that uh, the, the basis for this confession of hope and clinging to it is, once more, not me, it's him. And then finally, we look at the third point, and it is this idea of stirring up one another. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we see here that this importance of considering. The, the idea of consider is to have attentive, uh, focused care or thought. And so if I am going to stir someone up, I have to take the time, first of all, to get to know them. And then I have to be thoughtful in the things I say to them and the things that I encourage them to do. 
Uh, another way of saying stir up, and I like this word even more, is provoke. Right? Provoke. I think all of us know that we're very good and we're very natural at provoking one another, aren't we? And sometimes it's provoking one another not for the right reasons. And sometimes it's because, and I'll just put myself on the chopping block, I'm not being thoughtful. I'm not being considerate of what the other person needs. And so as I'm considerate of the other person's needs, Philippians 2 lays this out. Basically, don't consider yourself more important than others. We are there to serve. Right? And so as I consider others more important, as I consider what they need, then I can act in a way that is appropriate. However, I so often find that I just go with the flow and do what I want. It's not about me, it's about others. And so he says, stir one another up. And what are we stirring up to? It's to love and good works. Uh, as I think about this idea of stirring up, uh, I think of Gatorade. All right, so when I played soccer in college, just for one year, I rode the bench. It was an awesome time. Um, one of the best things after practice was the Gatorade because they would take the, the fresh powder and they would put it into this big bucket full of ice and water. They'd mix it up, and somehow, every time they did it, it was spot on. But you and I both know that if you just put powder in and then you just start dispensing that, it's not going to taste good. There's a need for someone to stir that up. To, in other words, to bring out that which is good in it. I need to actively be engaged in relationship with other people so that I can draw out of them that which would bring glory to God. And, and oftentimes, if we're not careful, we find that the people, we want to be careful who we're around because we want to make sure what they're drawing out is going to bring glory to the Father. And so we're called to stir up one another, first of all, to love. So to love, and this is just by acts of kindness towards one another, by, by demonstrating love for him, by loving one another, that is what we're called to do. This could mean a lot of things. This can mean you're bringing a meal to someone who's not feeling well. This can mean that you are just going and spending time together so the kids can run around and you can enjoy interaction with each other. There are so many ways that we can love one another, but we can't do it if we're not thinking. We can't do it if we're not thinking about one another. And so we're stirring one another up to love and good works. And so as a result of being together, Lord willing, it's going to cause a ripple effect of doing good things, of living in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. Right? If our, our, our hope is that as you fellowship here at Shelby and as you fellowship in a growth group, that you are encouraged, that in fact, that you're fired up to go and to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And so we need other believers, I believe, to help move us outside of what's comfortable. We need other believers to stir up in us what otherwise would lay dormant. I can fill my head with all the verses of Scripture, all of the knowledge of Scripture I want, but I believe I need other people to come alongside of me and to encourage me, to challenge me, and even call me out when I need it. One of my friends earlier this week told me uh, that, he is going to, that, that he was, in effect, holding the mirror to me and showing me a blind spot of mine. You and I have blind spots, whether we, whether we like it or not, and we need people who can come to us when we're out of line or when we're not doing something that we know to be true or know that needs to happen, and we need someone to hold that mirror to our face and say, this is what you look like right now. And I want to stir you up to love. I want to stir you up to good works. And so we need people around us who encourage us, who call us out, and who challenge us. And so this requires, once more, intentional effort. And I think I've found uh, in my very short life one of the best ways to do this is prayer. And I, I failed to mention this in the first service, but I have found that when, when we are mindfully considering the needs of one another, when we're mindfully considering what each other's going through, I think through prayer, we, we have an ability to stir them up. We have an ability to meet them where they are. 
I think if we're not being prayerful, it's very hard to be mindful of what they're going through. And so, stir up one another to love and good works. And it says specifically at the end, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day referring to when Christ will come back for his bride. And so, statement that was written down here, we gather together to help stir the rightful anticipation of the return of King Jesus. As we gather with the people of God around the word of God, we come to expect the return of the Son of God. If I am not careful, I can become so focused on life here on earth, specifically in our context where we live, with all the good things that we have available to us, that I can lose sight of the fact that I belong to a different kingdom. That I lose sight of the fact that there is a king coming, and I want to be not only ready, but I want to bring other people with me. And so because Jesus is our sacrifice and priest, we are called to draw near, hold fast, and stir up. In light of who Jesus is and the truth of what he has accomplished, I now am called to draw near. And it says, by the way, I think it's important. It says, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast. And then the last one is, let us spur one another. And so all this to say, as we come to a close, our corporate gatherings are very important. We need to make it a priority. And I, and I, and I know that it is important that we gather together for prayer, for worship, for time in the word. And it is in this context where we are corporately reminded that we have access to God and that we should draw near. We're also reminded in this time that we should hold fast to our confession of faith in Christ. That's what this gathering enables. That's what this gathering does. And thirdly, I would argue and I would, I would encourage you that the third one requires effort outside of this gathering. If we're going to stir one another up to love and good works, it's going to necessitate that we are intentionally spending time with one another outside of this corporate time together. Now, we want to encourage you to be involved in a growth group. A growth group is a means. It's not the means. Let's be very, very careful. It's a means to intentionally engage in Bible study and fellowship and time in, the, in, time in prayer. But it's not the only means. And so the, the goal is to challenge you to intentionally engage with one another. With one another whether that's a growth group or in some other context. And so why Christian community? And then I'm going to share my bottom line, and we're going to close this up. First thing is belong. We belong because Jesus is our sacrifice and priest, and we act like we belong when we actively stir others up. Right. So the reason we have growth group, the reason we want to encourage you to get into community is because we need to be reminded that we are accepted. We belong. Right? And I need other people to come along, alongside of me and remind me that my acceptance is not based on my performance, it's based on what he has accomplished. Secondly, practice. I need people to come alongside of me to help me to take what's up here to make sure that it's getting moved out there. Right? We need people around us to draw out and to spur on and to encourage us to take what we know to make sure that it's lived out. And then lastly, focus. When I come to this gathering and I hear you sing, when we see a baptism, uh, when we get into a smaller gathering, when we're praying together in, in the word, it does something with my focus. It gets my focus up. It gets my focus upward to him. And so my encouragement to you is, is be engaged in community. Find a way to be intentionally involved in the life of another believer, whether that's a growth group, that could be discipleship one-on-one. -on -one. We just want to challenge you to invest your time there. And here's my bottom line. We belong because Jesus is our sacrifice and priest. We act like we belong by intentionally encouraging and provoking one another to live like they belong. Would you please stand with me and let's pray together as we close this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning.
that we can with confidence enter into your presence because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient and because he intercedes on our behalf. Lord, we pray as we close the service, as we go from here, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. And Lord, as we launch our growth groups, we ask that you would be lifted up on high, that you would be magnified through our time together. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of your imminent return and that we'd be living in light of that. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would be magnified in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Amen.